0: Well, before I get into the message this morning, I want to make a special announcement. Eric Ginn, as you know, is our worship pastor. He's already in his 10th year with us. It's hard to believe. Time goes by so quickly. Uh, But he has released a new recording project, and it's entitled Great Grace. And it's a great uh, piece of music with a number of songs on here. And he's been working on it for quite some time. And these are available, going to be available today as you leave out of the worship center. Uh, And there's a cost to them to help us cover some of the production. It's also available on all of the uh, online platforms, uh, pretty much anywhere you might look or find your music online. You can find it for download and listen to it there as well. Uh, But we're really thankful for Eric and for his contribution to our pastoral team uh, for his family they're a great blessing to us and eric does a lot behind the scenes in ministry and serving and uh, we're really blessed to have him along with his primary uh, musical gifts in leading us on a weekly basis i'm grateful for his spirit and uh, for what he's doing in uh, our church family so please check that out and i know it'll be a blessing to you let's pray together and then we're gonna uh, look at the scripture together for a few minutes So, Father, we bow before you today, and we are so thankful that we can celebrate your goodness, your love, your mercy, your great grace. And, Father, I ask that you would draw our hearts closer to you and our time together here today, that we would be encouraged where we need to be encouraged. We would be challenged where we need to be challenged. We'd be convicted where we need to be convicted. And, uh, Lord, thank you for uh, Pastor Eric and for this recording project and all the work that has gone into it. And, and I pray that it would be a blessing to many. Uh, thank you for his service among us. And we pray that he would have many more years of faithfulness and fruitfulness uh, uh, through this church family and that you would bless his family. And, uh, Lord, as we worship you and lift up our hearts and our voices to you. And now as we turn our attention once again to this message of Pentecost. Uh, May Jesus be high and lifted up in all that we say and do here in these few moments together. And I pray it in his name. Amen. I want to speak to you today on this subject, the message of Pentecost, Jesus of Nazareth. And we're going to look at Acts chapter 2 in verse 22 through verse 36. We're considering what took place at Pentecost when the New Testament church was born in several parts. The first part being the miracle of Pentecost, which is in verses 1 through 13. Uh, The emphasis is on the power of God's Holy Spirit to fulfill God's plan, with the reach of God's plan being all nations for his kingdom to advance and for people from all nations to come to know him. The focus ultimately is on God's glory. He gets the attention. He gets the praise and the method to implement God's plan is the church. That's us. That's save people who have the blessing of being able to share the good news uh, about Jesus down the street and around the world. Then we uh, emphasized the message of Pentecost in prophecy fulfilled in verses 14 to 21. God said he would pour out his spirit on all flesh. That there would be a time of judgment to follow that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So he's presenting the idea that the messianic age has dawned, uh, ushering in uh, the beginning of the last days. And Peter's emphasizing that along with the coming judgment. And now he sets forth the offer of God's grace and mercy to all who will receive it. And now our emphasis in verses 14 uh, through uh, 21 and then all the way through to verse 36 is on the message of Pentecost, Jesus of Nazareth. Now, we know that authentication is a pretty big deal in our world. Something is attested to or authenticated by. So take, for example, if you're a collector of something that's of value, whatever it might be, and you... Collect that and you spend money on it, you want to be sure that you're not getting a fake. You want to be sure that you're getting the real deal, uh, that it's genuine, and that whatever you're being uh, in, sold or whatever you're investing in is in fact something that is uh, genuine. There's something called biometric authentication, and some of you that are in the uh, cybersecurity field might be more familiar with this, but there's biometric authentication. And it's basically a cybersecurity process. And what it does is it verifies a person's identity using unique biological traits. So it might be your unique fingerprints or uh, your voice uh, recognition or your retinas or some type of facial features. And what they do is they use these systems to store the information And then it matches you against the system when you're in an area where you need to clear security or you need access or you need to get to the next level, whether it be something as simple as an airport or some other type of higher level uh, security emphasis. And the point being is they want to authenticate your identity to know who you are, that in fact you are the genuine article of who you say you are. Well, in the passage of scripture today, Peter is preaching to the crowd and what he's preaching on is the authenticity of the identity of Jesus and the finished work of Jesus. And what he's saying is, listen, I want to point you to Jesus. I want you to know who he is and what he's done. And I want you to know that he is worthy of your faith. He is worthy of you following after him because he's who he says he is. And I want to look at this in four parts. The first being this, Jesus was authenticated through his life. He was authenticated through his life. Now, we pick up reading in Acts chapter 2 and verse 22, and this is what the Word of God says. Fellow Israelites, listen to these words. This Jesus of Nazareth was a man attested to you uh, or authenticated to you by God with miracles, wonders, and signs that God did among you through him just as you yourselves know. Now, Peter's sermon up to this point uh, has been an introduction. And as with any clear address where we're trying to communicate information, there's going to be the introduction of an idea, there's going to be the development of that idea or ideas within the body of what's being presented, and then there's going to be a conclusion or a call to action. And that's exactly what it is with Peter's sermon. He's introduced it, he's explained to the people what they had seen in the dramatic events of Pentecost, He's already referenced the prophecy of Joel. He's talked about the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, miraculous dreams and visions and prophecies, signs and wonders. And he's also going to give an invitation here to call on the name of the Lord. Now, Peter, as he preached, like anybody that's communicating something important, wanted the people to listen. He wanted them to receive what he had to say. So he's taking up the main theme of his message, and the main theme of his message is the proclamation of jesus as lord and messiah now in early apostolic preaching there were often four elements that would be included in the progression of what they communicated there would be the announcement that the age of fulfillment had arrived then there would be an account of the ministry the death and the triumph of jesus where they're recounting all that god has accomplished there would be a citation often of old testament scriptures whose fulfillment points to Jesus. So there will be a connection between the old covenant and the new covenant. And then there will be a call to repentance. There will be a decision because of what the people were being confronted with. Now, there was never a time when Jesus was not in eternity past. Jesus has always existed. Listen to what he says in John 17 and verse 5. He says, And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you. Listen to this. Before the world began. Now while there was never a time when Jesus was not, there was a time when Jesus took on flesh and he dwelt among us as God in the flesh. He is 100% God and 100% man and he is eternally so. And Jesus said and did things that only could be said and done by the authority and the power of God. Uh, worship is ascribed to him. He's identified as the son of man. And Peter says, fellow Israelites, you need to listen to these words. You need to pay attention to what I'm going to share because I've got something very important to say. So these miracles, wonders, and signs that God did through Jesus were ways of authenticating his character and his claims. So we can think about it this way. Jesus was designated appointed, authenticated by God to you, and attested to. This, this idea of authentication or being attested to is a, is a semi-technical term. I've already defined it, but you would find it in Greek uh, referencing office holders. So it would basically be people that were in position of prominence, that were running something, responsible for something in society, and this word would be used to authenticate or to attest to who they really were. And what God accomplished through Jesus among the people of Israel really needed no elaboration. And I say it needed no elaboration because these were people who had in many ways witnessed it. Uh, Many of them had at least. It was fresh in their minds and everything that was accomplished was accomplished through the power of God. Now he references here specifically the idea of miracles. Miracles are the mighty acts of Jesus in this context but if we think about a definition for a miracle, a miracle is something that is supernatural. It is an extraordinary event that confirms a message or a messenger or points to the power of God ultimately because that's the point of it. So it's something that would work outside of natural laws and would be beyond that and it would be by the power of God. Now when we look at the miracles in the Bible, it's interesting that there are three primary time frames for miracles in the Bible. During the time frame of Moses and Joshua, then also during Elijah and Elisha, and then finally through Jesus and the apostles. Each of these time spans lasted about a hundred years each, and all of them who were attested to or authenticated by what they were doing were extraordinary messengers from God. Jesus, of course, performed dozens of recorded miracles, many more that all the books that we might write uh, could not even contain. And these miracles range from turning water into wine, and healings, and exorcisms, and calming a storm, and power over nature, and feeding the 5,000, and raising people from the dead. So people who didn't even have faith in Jesus would have, having seen what he did, regarded him as a miracle worker. People understood the concept of a miracle worker, whether or not they credited deity to the person performing the miracle, they understood it. And even his enemies recognized the miracles that he did, but they denied that God was the source of power. So the Bible tells us repeatedly about these miracles. Uh, The Jewish historian Josephus, toward the end of the first century, described Jesus as a worker of amazing deeds. He was a miracle worker in every regard. So one commentator said the question was not, did Jesus perform miracles? That was taken for granted. What was in dispute was on whose authority and with what power Jesus performed these unusual deeds and these miracles. The miracles he did were to glorify God and to authenticate him as the son of God. They're found in every corner of the gospel narratives. Ranging from the sayings about him to the parables to some of the stories and the exorcisms and the healings and the raising from the dead. All of these are miracles that Jesus performed. Now, here's something that we know to be true today. There is, in uh, many uh, regards, a clear divide between the supernatural and what I would refer to as the anti supernatural today. Now, I understand there's a whole realm of people who are not Christians, who don't believe in Christ, they don't believe in the gospel, who are in all sorts of things like witchcraft and and the supernatural uh, element that you hear about that are dark and have nothing to do with what I'm referencing here. What I'm referencing more here is that many people look at this world as being all that there is. So there's this system of naturalism that says what I can see and touch and hear and experience with my senses, that's the only thing that is in fact reality. But Christianity clearly holds to the reality of supernatural in our, of the supernatural in our world. So whether it's the miracle of salvation when somebody comes to know Christ or it's a, a miracle of a physical healing that is outside of the norm and just should not have taken place that we give testimony to God for or whether it's uh, the, the empowerment of God on his people to do his work or whether it's a miracle of God's hand being on us and protecting us, many times when we don't even know it in a miraculous sense, all of these things are the miraculous power of God at work. And these miracles are for our good and for God's glory. He mentions wonders which arise from the amazement of people at the mighty acts of God. Uh, they declare God's dominion over people and events, and they also reveal his presence among us. And the Bible is filled with the accounts of the great acts of God. In the Old Testament, two words are translated as wonder, uh, one of which means a splendid or remarkable work, and the other of which is associated with the signs and the wonders that God performed through Moses during the Exodus from Egypt. And each of these words is intended to describe, really, ultimately, the response of people at what they're seeing. I mean, these things are miraculous. These things are wondrous. These things are beyond just a natural description. So therefore, we're going to go beyond what we can see and touch and hear and smell and taste. And we're going to say there's something supernatural that is even greater. And then finally, the signs. The signs are the things that they had seen at Pentecost, like the speaking in tongues, the visions, the healing, the, 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 the raising from the dead that Jesus performed in his, miracle, in, in his ministry, and so on. All of these were a confirmation that God was at work in the midst of the people. Now, think about it this way. The miracles, wonders, and signs reveal the person, the power, and the purpose of Jesus. The prophet Habakkuk said this in Habakkuk 1 and verse 5. He said, look among the nations and see, wonder, and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe even if told. You remember the Pharisees, how they asked for a sign from Jesus and Jesus rebuked them? Why did Jesus rebuke them for asking for a sign? Because ultimately, they weren't going to believe any sign that they saw. That was not their heart. They they weren't wanting to believe. They were wanting to trap Jesus in something. They were wanting to box him in. So when they asked for a sign, it wasn't from a, a genuine motivation. And even today, there are many people that deny that miracles can occur and maybe their their denials are, are anchored in the idea that they don't think that God exists to begin with. There's an atheistic viewpoint toward it. But yet, here God is saying, look at my son, look at the miracles, look at the wonders, look at the signs. They tell us something about this one who has brought them to pass. And they are designed in the life of Jesus... To draw people to him and to authenticate both the messenger and the message. Jesus was authenticated through his life. And then second, Jesus was authenticated through his death. Let's look now at verse 23. Verse 23 says, though he was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge, you use lawless people to nail him to a cross and kill him. Jesus was rejected, he was delivered up, and he was crucified. He was delivered up or handed over by god's plan now don't miss the connection here because there's a reference to both the determined plan and the foreknowledge of God that was connected to the death of jesus and just to summarize it and perhaps even oversimplify it, um, Jesus was not God's afterthought. He was God's plan for redemption from eternity past. God sees things from the beginning to the end and everywhere in between all at once. Nothing ever occurs to God. So God in his sovereignty and in his foreknowledge knew what was coming and he knew that his son was going to be the plan of redemption. And Isaiah said in Isaiah 53 and verse 10 that the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. So does it follow then that since God determined it, and it was God's plan for the ages, that people are not responsible? Does that follow? And the obvious answer is not at all. Peter says here, you use lawless people to nail him to a cross and kill him. Now, Peter is very direct about human responsibility. Who are the people who are referenced here? Technically, the Romans gave out the penalty for crucifixion and executed Jesus. They did not have the guidance of the Mosaic law. Crucifixion was a Roman method of execution. Roman soldiers drove the nails into his hands and his feet. Roman soldiers stood the cross upright. It was a Roman soldier who pierced his side... So certainly Rome had a specific role in it from the legal perspective, but then Israel through its leaders also contributed to the death of Jesus. The Jewish leaders demanded of the Romans that Jesus be put to death and they were threatened by him because he threatened the establishment. Then the people of Jerusalem were complicit in that they were the ones who shouted crucify him as Jesus stood on trial in acts chapter 4 peter refers to the jewish leadership Pilate, and herod as all being responsible along with the citizens of jerusalem but if we stop there we've stopped a step short because ultimately and theologically speaking we all are responsible for the death of jesus and the reason we all are responsible for the death of Jesus is that he went to the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. The one who was sinless was made to be sin. He took the wrath of God upon himself, and he took our penalty upon himself. And it was our sins that placed the innocent Lamb of God on the tree, and he willingly went to be our savior i love the song how deep the father's love and i love this part of it especially it says behold the man upon a cross my sin upon his shoulders ashamed i hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers it was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished his dying breath has brought me life and i know that it is finished So while the death of Jesus at first consideration might have seemed like a defeat or something that invalidated his messianic claims, that was not the case at all. In fact, it authenticated who he was and he was not killed as a victim. Listen to me. He was killed as a victor who brought God's plan of salvation to pass. Listen to what Jesus said in John chapter 10 and verse 17 and 18. He said, this is why the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. Verse 18, Jesus says, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own. I have the right to lay it down, and I have the right to take it up again. I have received this command from my Father. The death of Jesus was a holy act of selfless love, and Jesus was authenticated through his death. Then there's a third part. Jesus was authenticated through his resurrection. Now you'll note here that Peter spends one verse on the life of Jesus. He spends one verse on the death of Jesus. And now he spends nine verses on his resurrection. That's significant because his resurrection is the main focus of apostolic preaching. The foundation of it is his death. The sacrifice that he paid and the death that he died on our behalf. And then the authentication of that even further is his resurrection. And there's a contrast presented here. It says you put him to death, but God raised him up. Now let's pick back up in verse 24. It says God raised him up, ending the pains of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by death. For David says of him, this is King David. I saw the Lord ever before me, because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. Moreover, my flesh will rest in hope, because you will not abandon me in Hades or allow your Holy One to see decay. Verse 28, you have revealed the paths of life to me, and you will fill me with gladness in your presence. Verse 29, brothers and sisters, I can confidently speak to you about the patriarch David. He is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Since he was a prophet, he knew that God had sworn an oath to him to seat one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke concerning the resurrection of the Messiah. He was not abandoned in Hades, and his flesh did not experience decay. God has raised this Jesus. We are all witnesses of this." There were some who claimed that the disciples had faked the resurrection. There were some that claimed that somehow his body had been stolen. But now here's Peter. He's preaching in Jerusalem. He's preaching at Pentecost. He's in very close proximity to the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And not only proximity to the timeline... But he's in close proximity to the context, and Jesus has already appeared to Peter. He's already appeared to the twelve. He's appeared, resurrected to 500 people, more than 500 at once. Then to James, and then to all the apostles. Even the Sanhedrin and the guards knew that there was no body in the tomb. No one had evidence to contradict the claims of the apostles that Jesus had risen. So Peter now turns to David, and he turns to David to demonstrate that Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah, and what King David was prophesying about, what he was referring to, was nothing less than the resurrection of Jesus, but he's speaking about it hundreds of years before. He's even identified, David is identified in this passage, as a prophet. Peter cites psalm 16 and verse 8 through 11 and in doing so he shows an old testament prediction of the resurrection where david declares that god would not abandon his soul to hades and uh, or allow his holy one to undergo decay so peter argues listen david died he was buried his tomb is right here with us in jerusalem so what's the point that peter's making He's making the point that what David was talking about was not David. What David was talking about is the Messiah. That David, as a prophet, knew that God had promised to seat, one of his descendants, on his throne. So he looked ahead and he spoke of the resurrection of Jesus. And God has raised this Jesus and we are all witnesses of it. Who raised Jesus from the dead? The triune God. Galatians 1 says the Father raised Jesus from the dead. 1 Peter 3 says that the Spirit had a role in raising Jesus from the dead. John chapter 2 says that Jesus predicted he would raise himself from the dead. So this is the power of God over creation and over life and death, raising Jesus from the dead. And here's the point. The resurrection of Jesus is an authentication. It is a seal of approval. It is an attestation of the authenticity of everything that Jesus said and did. Peter's saying, look to him, the one who lived, the one who died, and the one who has now been raised. This is who he is, and this is why it's essential to our faith. Now, we know that the resurrection of Jesus is essential to Christianity. You've got, of course, the virgin birth, uh, the incarnation, the deity of Christ, the atonement for sin, the crucifixion. All these things are non-negotiable in our understanding of Jesus. But the resurrection is the crowning mark that demonstrates that he has power over death, hell, and the grave. So you can think about it this way. The resurrection of Jesus fulfilled prophecy, It guarantees our salvation. It gives us hope in this life. It guarantees our resurrection. That because Jesus has been raised from the dead, we too will be raised from the dead. That's why we can come to a time of a loss of a loved one or a friend who is in Christ and say, This is not the end. It's not the end of the story. In fact, it's not even the beginning of the end because to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. But not only is to be absent from the body to be present with the Lord, but there's also a resurrection coming and there's a glorified body coming. And if we're in Christ, this is promised to us. And this is our hope. Romans chapter 8 and verse 11 says, God raised Jesus from the dead and if God's spirit is living in you, he will also give life to your bodies that die. Jesus was authenticated through his resurrection. And now let's look at the fourth and final part. Jesus was authenticated through his exaltation. I pick back up reading now in verse 33 and we'll read through verse 35. Therefore since he has been exalted to the right hand of God and has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, he has poured out what you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord declared to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now, remember I told you Peter had a good, solid introduction to his sermon? Well, now he's coming toward a conclusion of his sermon. And the word, therefore, shows that God's resurrection and exaltation of Jesus authenticates him as the exalted one. So what does it mean when we say that Jesus has been exalted? Jesus did not take on glory that he did not have before. He was never diminished in his earthly life in any regard in terms of his deity or the glory that he possessed. But what it's indicating is that Jesus is now recognized through what he's done And the status of his glory is the glory that he has received from the Father. And to be exalted is to be lifted up by another. He did not try to take the position of the Father, but rather he humbled himself to the point of death and was then exalted. So when we say that Jesus is at the right hand of God, what we're speaking of is we're talking about the position of honor at God's right hand. And Peter, once again, cites David. And since David is not seated at the right hand of God, this has to be the Messiah who is seated at the right hand of God. And a person of high rank would put someone on their right hand in that position to signify honor and power and authority. Now immediately think of Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 9 through 11 says this, For this reason God highly exalted him, And gave him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The fact that Jesus is at the right hand of God is a sign to the disciples and to us that Jesus has gone to heaven when he ascended. And that he has equality with and authority from God. And this Jesus who is now seated at the right hand of God the Father is going to come again. Jesus was authenticated through his exaltation. Now let's look at verse 36 and I'm going to come toward a close. In verse 36 it says, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know with certainty that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. He is both Lord and Messiah, authenticated by his life, authenticated by his death, authenticated by his resurrection, authenticated by his exaltation. And now this brings us to a crisis of faith. If these things are true, and they tell us about who Jesus is and what he came to do and what he's capable of doing for us, then we've got to decide what are we going to do with this good news. Are we going to receive Jesus as Savior and Lord, follow him with our lives, or are we going to turn away and deny who he says he is or at least that we don't want any part of it? When you hear the good news, you got to decide what you're going to do with it. And it's not enough just to respect it. I've talked to so many people that have a general respect for the things of God and would even say, oh, yes, I I believe that. I, I, I agree with that. Okay, well, that's all fine and good. But I'm asking you, are you a follower of Jesus? Have you been washed in the blood? And are you walking with him by faith as your Savior and Lord? If you are, your faith has a strong foundation. And we've learned about it right here in this passage. If you're not, today would be a good day to meet Jesus and to follow him as Savior and Lord. Let's bow our heads together for a moment as we pray. I don't know where you are today spiritually. I don't know what's going on in your life, what's going good, what's not going good. But I can tell you this, you're not here by accident. God loves you and He has a reason and a purpose for your life. But it's got to include following Jesus as Savior and Lord so that you can walk in that purpose that He made you for, so that you can be forgiven of your sins and be in right standing with God. And the Bible says if you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you'll be saved. Today, some of you need to be saved. You need to say, I, I know I'm not a Christian. If I were to die tonight, I'd not spend eternity in heaven with God. But I want to. And it's as simple as being willing to turn from your sins and turn to the Savior. And he'll hear your cry for grace and mercy. Are you being faithful in sharing this good news with others? We are not to be ashamed of the gospel. We're to be bold in it. May the Lord use us in our faithfulness and our boldness in him. Father, we thank you today for this truth that Peter proclaimed at Pentecost. I thank you for just how clear it is and how you work through it in the power of your spirit. And I thank you for my brothers and sisters in Christ, those of us who have encountered this good news and received it by faith. And Lord, we're still learning, we're growing, we're maturing, we're progressing, but in, a, in all of it, we want to be more like Jesus. We want to honor him by how we live and how we share him with others. And I pray for anybody here today or who might listen to this message later on who has not yet come to Christ. I pray that they would know true peace and forgiveness and know th- what the gift of eternal life is all about. So we give this time of closing response over to you and we ask you to work in it however you see fit. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.